Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. It's February 25th, 2022. Hello, everybody, from Andrew, from Keenon, from San Francisco, as always. It seems, though, for all of us, whether we're in San Francisco or Georgia or wherever, we all feel we're kind of in the Ukraine. Today, the New York Times leads with the battle for Kiev. Uh, it feels like we're in the middle of the Second World War again. The Wall Street Journal uh, also has a massive headline about Russian forces closing in on Kiev. Times also reports after a vicious battle, a battle for Kharkiv. Again, the, the images of the Second World War, perhaps the biggest, uh, most vicious fighting in Europe since the Second World War. All happening, of course, in the Ukraine. Here we have a map of the Ukraine from the Washington Post, full of... Um, military installations and um, and, and uh, locations of strike, uh, Russian strikes and attacks. Um, Ukraine, though, of course, is more than just a, a theater of war. Uh, has a long, complicated history, as, as the Wikipedia entry. It's right in the middle of Europe, or at least in uh, the middle of east-central Europe on the western border of Russia, uh, bordering on many countries in eastern Europe. Um, and um, the complexity of Ukraine is more than, I think, just um, just Russian military aggression. Uh, the, uh, the Ukrainian ambassador to Russia today suggested that there is no purgatory for war criminals. They go straight to hell. I learned about that on the Twitter page of my guest today. Scott Reynolds Nelson, but Scott is not an expert on um, on military. He's a historian of grain, of all things, um, and he has a really intriguing piece just out, Wheat and Deep Ports, The Long History of Putin's Incursion into Ukraine. It's a piece of a new book that's out this week by Scott, Oceans of Grain, How American Wheat remade the world. The subtitle is about American wheat, but in many ways, I think the book is about Russia and the Soviet Union, and above all else, the Ukraine. And I'm thrilled that uh, Scott is joining us uh, from his office uh, in Athens, Georgia, where he teaches at the university. Uh, Scott, very serious um, events unfolding, tragic events in, in the Ukraine. You take the long view, don't you? I mean, you, obviously, Putin didn't invade Ukraine for Ukrainian grain. But there is a broader picture of why Ukraine has always been so central to Russian uh, imperial ambitions. Right. I mean, the Russian Empire wouldn't be uh, where it was after Peter the Great without access to the Black Sea, without control of Ukraine. And so... There have been seven wars since the 1780s, eight wars since the 1780s over Ukraine as the Russian Empire expanded into this region, initially taking it from the Ottoman Turks and uh, the Crimean uh, Khanate. And keeping Ukraine has been uh, really at the center of Russian ambition. Russia could not have become a world-spanning empire 
uh, in, in the period that it did without Ukraine. Ukraine is both its deepest port and its source of food. We think of Russia as being full of food, but Ukraine is uh, really the breadbasket and, and has been for a long time. Right. You, uh, you, you write people. in this interesting piece, observers discussing the Russian tanks, infantry vehicles, ballistic missiles and soldiers massed at Russia's borders with Ukraine have framed the story either as a reawakening of Cold War tensions or as Vladimir Putin's attempt to stoke nationalist sentiment at home. But there is a bigger and much older geopolitical story behind this buildup of troops. One part of it goes back to 1768, when Tsarina Catherine II had tens of thousands of Russian soldiers move south to conquer the plains above the Black Sea. Uh, Talk to me about uh, Catherine uh, the Great uh, and her significance uh, in all this. Right. So Catherine the Great is moved by the physiocrats, uh, uh, French economists, or really the uh, probably the first economists in the kind of traditional sense, who see uh, the, the kind of landscape and particularly grain as being uh, something that empires for the first time can export and make uh, and make a profit kind of be- benefit, not just by feeding themselves. Empires have always fed themselves with grain, but feeding other empires. And so both the United States and Russia basically are scrambling for uh, these flat plains where they can produce wheat and expel it on the market. It, it's uh, feeding Europe is basically what uh, the Russian Empire and the United States are trying to do uh, over this period. It's uh, Russia is the real, real victor from the 1760s all the way up until around the time of the American Civil War. And then it's at that point that the United States displaces Russia on the international market. It's funny, Scott. Uh, I'm not sure if it's funny. It's coincidental. And your book is full of unusual coincidences. Mm -hmm. We had the American diplomat Trump critic Fiona Hill on the show uh, last year on what she calls the increasing Russian way of life in America. But this uh, untangling the these parallel and, and, and complicated histories of Russia and America uh, is something you're also doing, and and and, it, and it's a story that most people aren't familiar with, the intimacy of agricultural capitalism and how technological advances in America had such a profound impact on Russia. Is that fair? Uh, yes, it is. I think, and, and we a lot of economists have this idea that industrialization is the thing that produces wealth, but in fact the U.S. and Russia have really relied largely on food as their basis of expansion. The U.S. expansion was based largely on expelling first grain and then all sorts of manufactured food. Uh, Russia's, all of Russia's uh, foreign capital, the Russian Empire's foreign capital came from uh, something like 80% of it came from the export of grain. And and that was the energy up until the 1880s or 1890s. Most energy that was produced was energy for food to feed horses and people. And uh, that that superpower conflict is those two places at either ends of Europe uh, are kind of battling to feed Europe. The United States develops the futures market and uh, the Civil War in in a way uh, catalyzes this, um, the expansion of the U.S. over uh, Russia in that international market. You've written a lot, Scott. Uh, your previous books have mostly been about America. So many mm-hmm. of you be familiar with Steel Driving Man, uh, John Henry, the untold, the untold Story of an American Legend. That was a very successful book. And then People at War, Civilians and Soldiers in American Civil War. How does the history of cotton in the American South and the history of grain, how are they connected? So 
cotton is we th we think of uh, well most people think of the United States as being a big cotton exporter in the period before the war certainly it was it was the biggest single export but uh, once the southern states secede um, that's off the table right so the south can uh, uh, is is trying to secede from the United States that they block an embargo uh, cotton and the U.S. goes uh, U.S. government the Union Army goes kind of whole hog towards the support of grain exports as a, as a kind of replacement for that. We see four railroad corridors come from Chicago to New York uh, built. Uh, we, we, we associate those with the robber barons. The robber barons actually start during the war, funded by the US Army in part. And we see a futures market that allows this kind of long distance delivery of grain. American industrialization afterwards could, kind of wouldn't, couldn't have taken place without that grain. Um, and, and it's uh, Russia, which had become a world spanning empire, uh, by comparison, starts to drop in uh, significance and importance by that uh, competition. Um, Scott, as you know, as a historian, the endless debate about why the Russian Revolution happened, how it could have been avoided, what, what could have been alternatives is a game that historians have been playing ever since 1917. You kind of play that game implicitly with your coverage of a man called Count Witter, um, who was a Russian, again, according to Wikipedia, a Russian statesman, the first prime minister of the Russian Empire, mm -hmm. and a man who tried to import Western-style capitalism into Russia, particularly in the context of grain. Why is Witter so important in your history? Um, well, Vita is, is trying to uh, basically compete with the United States, and so he... he uh, establishes a kind of um, invest in the infrastructure that makes it possible uh, to send that grain through uh, Ukraine to the Black Sea. Uh, it's it's his uh, he, he kind of tries to establish a network. He provides credit to farmers, and he has this sort of ostentatious plan to build a port to another place, which is in in China, uh, in Manchuria, the northern part of China. And uh, it's that that finally gets him in trouble. It's it's arguably Vita is responsible for the collapse of the Russian Empire because this tremendous investment, mostly by French investors, actually, uh, puts Russia in a position where it's um, it's supposed to pay off these bonds over time with wheat exports. But when they get to Manchuria, Japan uh, decides uh, that that Manchuria belongs to it, that it has more authority to claim this region, and the Russo-Japanese War ultimately dooms, I think, the Russian Empire. The Russian right, Empire, as, uh, uh, as you note in the book, for a billion, um, yeah. it it triggers the 1905 revolution right. in Russia, right, uh, which in turn created the conditions for the two revolutions of 1917. Mm -hmm. So, how central do you think this issue of grain? and the Ukraine was in the two revolutions of 1917, particularly the Bolshevik Revolution? Um, it's, it's hugely important. It's, it, uh, you know, when Russia is, is, uh, doesn't have access to Ukrainian uh, wheat, it's in serious trouble. The, the whole uh, infrastructure is really about sending wheat onto the Black Sea and then to Europe, to Antwerp, uh, London, and elsewhere. The... Um, the, the army at, during in, during the war, the Russian Imperial Army trying to make, lays a claim on most of the Ukrainian grain for its own troops, and this actually leads to tremendous skyrocketing of prices for food in Russia. 
which uh, particularly in Moscow and Petersburg, but elsewhere in the rural countryside, believe it or not, food prices go up quite a bit. And this is a, this is a, a, a long-term strain from 1915 all the way to 1917 in Russia. And as food prices go up, as we know from the you know, French Revolution and every other major revolution, that, um, the, the Arab Spring as well, when food prices go up 20 to 30 percent, uh, you're likely to see major conflict uh, and even revolution. Scott, what you're saying then, and we've had a number of shows about this, is for all the digital revolution, all the stories about virtuality, geography, physical geography really matters. And in the Ukrainian case, it matters for a couple of reasons. Firstly, because mm -hmm. of the incredible rich, richness of the soil, mm -hmm. which can't be reproduced to online or, or, or through <laughs> new technology. And right. secondly, Ukraine's critical place as the um, the corridor for Russian communication, physical communication with Europe. Is that fair? Yes. And in fact, that's where the tanks are moving now is down that what's called the Varangian corridor. It's an it's an ancient corridor connecting the Baltic and the Black Seas. And uh, it's it's where wheat went in the you know third century BC. And it's it's that route to uh, to deep water is crucial for Russia's uh, international trade. And it's uh, Ukraine, Russia can't, kind of can't exist without Ukraine. When, when, uh, when Putin said that uh, Ukraine is historically Russian territory, um, what he's talking about is not so much, uh, in fact, you know, Russia is, uh, Ukraine is arguably older than Russia, but uh, what, what it, in fact is he's saying is that Russia depends on Ukraine. It can't exist as a kind of powerful empire without Ukraine. And so, and that's, that's well, kind but, of always. Uh, I mean, Sorry. some people might say, Scott, well, it it, it it could just have friendly relations with Ukraine. Why does it have right. to incorporate Ukraine into, into the Russian empire? No, you're, you're, you're very right. Right. You, uh, you could have, uh, Ukraine could allow this, uh, this tr transit of crop. It doesn't, I'm not trying to justify uh, no, I, I'm, I'm not suggesting you are, sure. but, uh, but, but I think your historical, your long view is really important with these kind of headlines, which tend to dramatize the immediacy and the military aspect. Right. We had um, Angela Stent, one of America's leading authorities on Putin, author of Putin's World on the show. She's a Brookings mm -hmm. Institute scholar. Right. She talked about the world that Putin was creating, a paranoid and polarizing world. We've done many shows on that, including with Moises Naim earlier this week. But you're suggesting that Putin is behaving in some ways no different from Azar or from right. Stalin. Right. Azar, Stalin. Stalin you know, famously uh, needed Ukraine and starved Ukraine into submission. Um, but no, I mean, when, when Putin threatens the... Um, the, the world order he's got sitting very prominently behind him is the Russian imperial flag um, in that famous speech where he says that Russia is a nuclear power. And um, the, the, the double eagle of the uh, Russian empire is the claim to old Byzantium, right? And yeah, we a did a show actually on the Ottomans earlier this week with uh, Mark Bauer and again, mm -hmm. The uh, the ghosts of the past. Well, I don't need to tell you. Um, I don't need to tell you, uh, uh, Scott Reynolds Nelson, as a distinguished historian, about how the ghosts never die, but they're particularly alive, it would seem, in the Ukraine. You, you mentioned the Bolsheviks. What about uh, the importance of 
the Ukraine and Ukrainian grain in, in, in the, the Soviet experiment. Um, you write about this in your piece. Um, mm -hmm. uh, of course, uh, the Ukraine was also the stage for one of the great catastrophes, humanitarian catastrophes in history, the Ukrainian uh, famine. Uh, uh, Anne Applebaum has written extensively about mm -hmm. this. Anne's been on my show a couple of times. All right. Mm -hmm. How does this play out, Scott? The the importance of the Ukraine. I mean, how? In very simple terms, how could everyone in Ukraine have starved? Given that the Ukraine has some of the richest agricultural land in the world, we can blame this exclusively on Stalin. Uh, well, easy question. Very largely, very largely, yes, yes, almost entirely on Stalin. I mean, there, I don't want to suggest that there weren't shortages, but but you know, control of that um, of that bounty is really what puts uh, Ukraine in a position where the, that we, we see uh, just people dying of starvation in Ukraine. It's a little outside of my field. I'm more of a kind of 19th century historian than I am of a historian of the 20th century. Don't duck what, the question. <laughs> Once we get to the middle of the 1930s, I get uh, uh, I, I get less uh, confident. But no, this is absolutely caused by Stalin. This is absolutely putting the kind of Ukrainian SSR in a position where it has to provide and has to feed the Soviet experiment. As well, it's a fascinating spin. Uh, you know, you can you can switch on CNN and hear too much about Putin and America and tanks, but this is the long view and this is the important view. And it comes out of Scott Reynolds Nelson's new book, Oceans of Grain, How American Wheat Remade the World. Ukraine figures centrally. So does Russia in, in, in this very rich narrative. Um, we're going to take a break, uh, Scott, now. And then after the break, I want to talk about the central character in your book, a man called Parvis. Fascinating character, rich, complicated, controversial so stay with us, everyone. We're talking to Scott Reynolds Nelson, the author of Oceans of Grain. And afterwards, we're going to talk about one of the more fascinating and unknown characters from the 20th century. We'll be back in 60 seconds. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of 
recorded videos, uh, not live. You can see all the shows on the Lit Hub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keenan. We are back with Scott Reynolds Nelson, the author of Oceans of Grain, a fascinating take on Ukraine, Russia, America, and the economic history of grain, particularly in the 19th century, but also throughout history. Um, the character who I was most intrigued with, who is perhaps the star of your book, Scott, is a man called Alexander Livov uh, Parvus. Uh, tell me about him and why he's such an interesting character, why he's so central to your narrative. Um, yeah, so Parvus was a famous revolutionary you've never heard of. He was the person kind of uh, crucial to Trotsky's uh, rise in, inside the Communist Party. He was, uh, Lenin saw him as the kind of intellectual uh, heir. Much of what we, when we talk about world systems, a world economy, a lot of that comes from Parvis. When I was writing before about grain in the like, 1990s and elsewhere, try, try to talk about how important grain was to understanding the world economy, I discovered that this person had said pretty much everything I said, but 130 years before me. And uh, he's basically this uh, a grain trader. He watched this revolution where grain shifted away from Ukraine and towards the United States. Uh, the, the United States replaced Ukraine as the biggest uh, exporter of grain. And he watched a kind of world economic crisis happen in 1873 and came up with a kind of explanation for how empires depend on grain, which then uh, for, for that, from then on kind of uh, helped shape the, both the Bolshevik and the Menshevik parties in Russia uh, in, in terms of their strategy for bringing the Russian empire down. As he saw it, you, sh you shave off or, or impede in some ways those black paths of grain from the source to uh, those, those markets, and you can hobble or even uh, destroy or bring, bring about the collapse of an empire. And that's precisely what Parvis does. He's an economist, but we, he's also the person who persuades the German government to send a SEAL train of Bolsheviks and Mensheviks yeah, to, he, uh, to start he, the war. He's so interesting on so many levels. Um, we did a show uh, kind of, I mean, it's unconnected formally, but everything's connected with a, another historian, Nomi Stolzenberg, on how a, a group of American Hasidic Jews established the principles of a shtetl um in uh in upstate new york and one of the intriguing things uh about parvis is that he was born into a shtetl um born to a lithuanian jewish family in 1867 in the shtetl of Bez berazino what is it do you think about a man like parvis and he's not alone amongst the early bolsheviks right and leftists who made them such good traders such good capitalists given that their business was the destruction of capitalism? Um, I think, well, for, I think Parvis was, was somewhat different from the others because he had been kind of actively involved in the grain trade. His father and his brother were, were grain traders. And I think he, that, that kind of understanding of uh, how trade works and how important trade is, uh, increasingly in, in the latter part of the 19th century, the information networks of the world are no longer 
in the seats of political power. They're increasingly where the grain trade uh, centers are. So the um, the Boerses and the boards of trade and things like that, they have information about wars and conflicts before anyone else does because it's so crucial to the price of grain. And so I think that's part of the reason why um, it's, it's that kind of understanding of the world economy that a grain trader is kind of forced to have uh, that um, informs his kind of reorganization re of Marxist thought and a kind of understanding of basically how the world is brought together by... So do you think Parvis, in a sense, thought like a historian? He had to think in the long term. So if he was around today, he certainly wouldn't be watching CNN, would he? <laughs> no, no. He, I mean, Parvis read Latin and Greek. He uh, read old... Uh, uh, he read Ukrainian, but he also uh, Russian and German. And and he was a historian. He was, he was kind of classically trained in part because he was kicked out of the... Um, Russian school system in Odessa because he was Jewish and was trained by private tutors who were also kicked out of that uh, system. And then he was on the run, really, for the rest of his life. Yeah, I mean, he spent some time 18. in Istanbul. Uh, he lived right. there for five years. He was connected mm -hmm. with the Young Turks. And again, this comes right. back to the show we did on, on the Ottomans. He was a man of the world. He was a notorious womanizer, very colorful character. Somebody should, um, well, someone has made a, a film out of it, out of his life, haven't they? Yeah, a couple of films. Uh, uh, Russia, the Russian government, as it's turned more towards a Russian kind of valorization and love of the old Russian Empire, uh, wrote a, uh, did a two-part series on Parvis that was uh, very expensive, and it showed him as the kind of evil Jewish conspirator who, a kind of buff crime lord who brings about the Bolshevik Revolution. I mean, uh, in that sense, Putin sees the revolution as both a kind of heroic thing, but also as something that um, made the Russian Empire deviate away from its you know, fundamental practices. And so blaming it all on this Jewish man is important. The Ottoman Empire, uh, sorry, the, the Turkey, the modern Turkey, uh, also in, a, in the kind of, what's the word, um, nostalgia for the old uh, Ottoman Empire, weirdly blames Parvis for the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, sees him as... It's a wonderful leader. accomplishment. I wish someone could blame me for all that stuff. He's the great horror <laughs> of the early 20, 21st century, isn't he? Right. Everyone I mean, the Nazis... blames him on it for everything because yeah. he saw things before anyone else. He made huge That's amounts right. of money. He shaped world history. He was a rich leftist, which drives poor conservatives mad. Right. Yeah, he's a kind of Soros character. I mean, it, the the Nazis. Yeah, kept why do you think? Um, why, why do you think uh, leftists tend to make more money than conservatives? Are they simply smarter, Scott? <laughs> it's uh, I, I, a friend of mine uh, was involved in a uh, friend of mine knows a friend who was involved in the sort of Trotskyist day trading uh, organization that made uh, lots and lots of money. But um, I think you know. Uh, leftists, to a certain extent, are kind of interested in the material world. They're interested in the economy, and they're 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 kind of running against the grain for most neoclassical and other kinds of economic theories. And it makes them kind of critical and makes them see things that other folks don't. I think often, and so that's um, it. Parvus was definitely against the grain in terms of much of the excusing the pun being against the grain, the right? <laughs> but but um, but but his kind of commitment to Marxist theory was, uh, and, and holding that side by side between the way the world is actually working, 
kind of forced him to think a lot more, I think, than most. Uh, well, I like to think artists. that uh, certainly the Bolsheviks thought more than anyone else, which they thought ahead. They seized control of this huge empire, tiny group of people, right. enormously talented guys like Car Parvis. I mean, uh, I'm still proud of my Parvis, even if it didn't turn out so well. You, you make this interesting uh, connection at the end between, and again, I hadn't heard of this book, a book called The Last Days of Tugatron, and uh, an author called Tatiana Yevgenvna uh, Gadina, who was, uh, is she the granddaughter of Parvis or certainly related? Right, she's Parvis's granddaughter. And uh, she, I think she may still be alive. Uh, she's yeah, I think, well, from the, the little bit of research I did, it seems like she's, uh, she's still alive, but maybe we don't know of her death yet. She's certainly an old lady now. She's right. uh, almost 100 years old. But she wrote this book called The Last Day of Tugatrons. Is that right? Yeah, Last, uh, last Day of the Tugatrons. It's, it's, it's not been translated into English. Um, I, can I, should I tell the story briefly? Of course, you're, uh, you're the storyteller, you're the historian. Uh, <laughs> well, so the last day of the two grounds is about a boy with a magic bicycle who travels to a world where massive robots dominate the smaller humans who, do, who labor for them. And the robots have muzzles that prevent them from deviating from orders. The workers are starved because the robots throw bags of harvested wheat into the ocean, not understanding that grain is there to feed the humans. And the boy takes a bag and he unties it and sees the grain there and it tells the humans to untie the bag so that they can feed themselves. And he learns then that the robots can't untie knots. And so he tells, he reprograms the robots with poetry, gets them to spout nonsense and break down. And, and all the workers celebrate the collapse of the robot overlords by eating donuts. And it's a, it's a, a very important for the people who are kind of my age in the Late, mid to late 50s and 60s. This was a very important science fiction uh, book. Can you still read this book? I was looking for it online. I don't know if it's available. Uh, well, you need to read Russian. So it's it's not okay. translated into English. Um, I can, I can uh, find a Russian copy for you if you'd like. Um, well, I'm more for, for, for our viewers. Uh, but it, it, right. I, I, that's one of the things I loved about uh, your, your book, uh, Scott, uh, Oceans of Grain, How American Wheat Remade the World. It's full of these fascinating connections of stuff that I knew nothing about. And I think everyone's going to be enlightened and entertained. And, um, and, 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 and this is a book that will make people thoughtful about the long view. It's a, it's a profoundly healthy antidote to newspaper headlines and CNN stuff. So congratulations on the book. It's just out. What else should people be reading as uh, Kiev now, the battle for Kiev rages, Scott? Wow. Well, um, the, I, I'd, I'd say that stepping back a little bit from the immediate Russian situation is important. And so Neil Asherson's The Black Sea. Is yeah, one of magnificent my book. He's a great books. writer, Neil Asherson. He, he's, he's excellent. And uh, let's see, give me a second here. I, um, I'd also say, oh, bear with me. This is. It's been a long day. I've been, I just got through teaching. So uh, also Bethany Hughes's Istanbul, A Tale of Three Cities, which mm. gives us a sense of uh, what the Black Sea was like and the power of Istanbul over it. Um, Abner Offner's uh, The First World War, an agrarian interpretation, which shows yeah. basically the unfolding of that uh, war. Uh, I think Sean McMeekin has a quite good book. Uh, a couple of his books are about... Um, this, this sort of coming of World War One and Parvis. 
Uh, McMeekin doesn't like Parvis as much as I do. I'm I'm kind of a fan, a Parvis fan. He's my man crush, but uh, McMeekin is a much more. Well, he's my mine too. He's hard not to fall in love with with Parvis, and I think right. actually um, Mark Bauer's book on the Ottomans is also connected because right. Bauer makes Ottoman history and European history the same thing, and, and in a sense, you're doing the same thing, Scott. So congratulations on the book and on those suggestions. Uh, finally. Scott Reynolds Nelson, author of Oceans of Grain. Uh, who's in charge? The um, that's a that's a great question. I would say I would say that we that since the 1860s, a kind of with with the international market being kind of visible, the pulse of that uh, market, that the people who are uh, fund managers and day traders, not uh, fund managers, I wouldn't say day traders, people who make two to three million a year for managing a billion or more a year. Those are the people who reshape our world on a regular basis. And uh, there aren't a lot of them. Uh, they're not the people that you've heard of. And they've been kind of had their fingers on the pulse of the world for um, the last 170 years. Um, their, their world is uh, a world of markets. Grain prices have uh, drastically increased since uh, the Odessa crisis. And it's not surprising because uh, Africa and much of North Africa and uh, other parts of the world are fed by Odessa grain. So uh, it's, it's those who kind of understand and follow this international market that's not about stocks. It's about everything.